0: Lord Jesus, you commanded us to go into all the world and to preach the gospel. We pray in this new week that you've entrusted to us, that we would be good stewards of our time, and that we might not miss the opportunities that you might bring our way. We pray with the Apostle Paul of old that you might provide an open door for us to minister to someone on whatever level that may be. Maybe just a word of kindness maybe an invitation to church, maybe the plan of salvation. Please use us. And if you would be so pleased to give us a chance to share your son, help us to do it with clarity and with power that you would be honored and glorified. Thank you that when you save us, you have committed yourself to forming Christ in us. And we're so grateful for the Holy Spirit, our helper who comes alongside. And for the word, the sword of the spirit that he uses to renew our mind, to change our lives. So we ask in humility this morning as we open your word that our hearts might be open and tuned to whatever you want to say. I know without you I can do nothing, but with you all things are possible. So I pray and ask that you might come and fill me and empower me and use me, that all who hear this message, whether here in Graniteville and Grays or in some other part of the world, That hearts would be touched the lost would be saved and the saved would grow and we ask it jesus in your name and for your name's sake amen i invite you this morning to take your bibles and turn to the prophet jonah chapter 4. if you're new to the bible just find the middle that's about psalms in most bibles and scan to the right and you'll soon hit jonah jonah micah nam use the table of contents if that's useful to you we've been working our way through this short little prophetic book Because of the shortness, he and 11 others are called minor prophets, but we've seen indeed their message is mighty. And we've been examining Jonah from a historical perspective. I say historical because this book is not fictional, it's not a parable, it's not an allegory, it's not a fairy tale, it's history. It's history of a real person named Jonah who was the real son of a dad whose name was Amittai, who was raised in a real town near Nazareth called Gath-Hefer. He was swallowed by a real fish. He preached to real people called the Ninevites in a real place called Nineveh, which resulted in real conversions. He was spit up by a real fish. This is not myth or allegory. This is history. And that's how Jesus understood it. And so that's how I understand it. Jesus said, just as Jonah was in the stomach of the sea monster for three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. Jesus didn't say, well, just like Jonah allegorically was in the stomach of the great fish, so I will allegorically be resurrected. What is true of one is true of the other. And so the historical resurrection of the Messiah is linked to this particular historical event. And so Jesus will go on to say the men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented to the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus saw the repentance, the Ninevites is real, as history And what the Lord believed about Jonah, that's what you ought to believe. You may be asking, well, why is one's interpretation of Jonah so critically important? It's because of the mess that our nation is in today. We are in the mess that we are in for the simple reason that people no longer respond to the authority of Holy Scripture. The President of the United States came out Ten days ago and he said I said this last year I say it again especially to our younger transgender Americans I'll always have your back as your president so that you can so that you can be yourself and reach your God-given potential that's upside-down thinking transgenderism does not reflect God-given potential It represents fallenness. It represents sin that can be forgiven and can be changed. And so we are called to defend the faith. It's articular in the book of Jude. That is this body of truth we call Holy Scripture. And now the church in America has been woke. The sad thing is is that many people who are in these woke churches don't even know that their pastors are woke because they're so deficient on basic biblical truth. There's a lot of people today who want to ignore the authority of Scripture. And they say, well, it doesn't really matter if you believe in a literal six-day creation. Oh, really? It doesn't really matter if you believe that Adam and Eve were real historical people. It doesn't really matter if there was a literal ancient flood that covered the whole world in Noah's day. It doesn't really matter if there was a person by the name of Jonah who was swallowed by a real fish. And they say that these issues are really unimportant. But when you acquiesce to that kind of thinking, you lose all biblical authority. And when you deny biblical history, you always end up denying biblical morality. And that's where our pulpits are across this nation. So our approach is the approach that Christ took to understanding Jonah. We are looking at it as history. Now, if you remember, he ministered the word of God to nearly 600 people. Thousand people, and the single greatest conversion of the history of the world to date takes place, and you would have thought God would have ended the book there, mission accomplished. But actually, the apex of the book is Jonah chapter four, because God has some work that He wants to do in the life of His prophet. So we're going to begin by reading our passage of Scripture. If you're new, there is a note-taking outline there in your bulletin. If you're live streaming, there's a place for you to be able to print it out. We're going to look at the middle four verses, but I want to read the entire chapter, so follow along in your Bible. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was this not what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. The Lord said, "'Do you have good reason to be angry?' Then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. There he made a shelter for himself and sat under it and the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. So the Lord God appointed a plant, and it grew up over Jonah to be shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. But God appointed a worm when dawn came the next day. It attacked the plant, and it withered. When the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, Death is better to me than life. Then God said to Jonah, Do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry even to death. Then the Lord said, You had compassion on the plant for which you did not work, which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight, should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand, as well as many animals? Now, for the benefit of those being here for the first time, and for the rest of us to help embed the details and the broad picture of this book in our mind because when you see the big picture of a a book of the Bible, when you can think your way through it, it becomes a tool, not just to help others, but to help us to grow. If you remember here this chart, we've seen that this book revolves around two commissions. In chapters 1 and 2, we have the first commission introduced in the opening verse, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, And then if you remember, the second commission starts in chapter 3 and verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the prophet the second time. And then we have further studied this under four different headings. If you remember, we met him in chapter 1 running in the opposite direction from where God wanted him to go. We called him the prodigal prophet. The sovereignty of God, he is thrown overboard, swallowed by a great fish, and he quickly becomes the praying prophet. And of course, he vows to do what's right, and so the praying prophet in the third chapter becomes the preaching prophet. He preaches the message of the Lord. He preaches about Christ. How do I know? Because he's a prophet. And Peter says in Acts 10, all the prophets preached the Messiah. Sometimes we think, well, these guys didn't know a thing. How wrong they are. All they need to do is read Acts 10. He understood what Messiah was going to do someday. Didn't know his name would be Yeshua, but he preached Jesus. There's mass conversion. And then in chapter four, we meet him as the pouting prophet. Now, it's interesting in scripture, God doesn't just reveal the success of his servants, He also reveals their failures, which is one of the reasons I love the scripture. It's so real when God paints the portrait of a man, he does it blemishes in all. Now, typically we associate pouting with children, but it is certainly not limited to children. Now, if you've been with us and you've been taking notes, then you know with each chapter there are three words that you've written out in the margin that kind of summarize that particular chapter. So you should have by now, unless you're here for the first time, next to verses 1 to 4 of chapter 4, the word attitude. The word attitude. Then next to verses 5 through 8, you've written down the word consistency. The word consistency. Consistency. And then finally, next to verses 9 through 11, you've written the word perspective. The word perspective. So we find Jonah here in the fourth chapter matriculating into a seminary called JTS, the Jehovah Theological Seminary. And in this seminary, God is the professor and Jonah is the student. So last time, he enrolled him first in a course on attitude. Today, we'll see God's course on consistency, and God willing, next week, God's course on perspective. Now, we are told in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that the mistakes and the sinful decisions that Old Testament saints made were written for our benefit so we can learn from them. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 10, he said, now these things happened as examples for us. He had just recounted. Some of the gross things that Israel had done, they happened as examples for us so that we should not crave evil things as they also craved. And then in verse 11, he'll write, now these things happened to them as an example and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So lest any of us be smug and think that we could not commit the same kind of sins that Israel committed or that Jonah committed, He then quickly adds, therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. If you think these problems, these challenges, these sins could never happen to you, then you are really tempting the devil to tempt you. And we know that any of these things could happen to anyone because then he says in verse 13 of that chapter, no temptation is overtaking you, but such as is common to man. God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond that which you are able, but with the temptation, provide the way of escape also that you might be able to endure it. And so in chapter 4 of the book of Jonah, we find this full-grown adult as a pouting prophet. Now let's just remember for a moment the contrasts between Jonah chapter 3 and Jonah chapter 4. In chapter 3, we found God ministering through the prophet. Here in chapter 4, we find God ministering to the prophet. In chapter 3, we find God ministering to an entire city. Here in chapter 4, we find God ministering to a single individual. Why? Because God is not simply interested in the masses. When the Bible says, for God so loved the world, he's speaking certainly of the masses. But then there are other verses in the New Testament that affirm that if you are the only one alive, and Jesus were to die, he would have done it just for you. God is interested not just in the salvation of the masses, but each and every individual, and the same could be true of the subject of sanctification. God has the very hairs of our head numbered. So here's Jonah. God has done a lot already in this prophet's life, but he has more to do. There's still a certain amount of self-love self-desire, self-will, and self-determination that God needs to root out for him to become all that God wants him to become. And so while there are different methods in different centuries and in different places that God uses to care for his people, his ultimate goal has not changed one bit. God is over the prophet Jonah's life, and God is over your life, and he's over my life. Now, three simple points if you're taking notes, first, I want you to see God's ministry to Jonah by his sovereign giving. We want to see how God ministers to this pouting prophet, and he does in three specific ways. First, God's ministry to Jonah by his sovereign giving. Now, this is brought out in verse 5, but what precipitates God's actions was Jonah's attitude that is seen in the question that God asked him here in verse 4. The Lord said, do you have good reason to be angry? Now, God likes to ask questions because they're effective in helping sinful people like us to see what the real problem is, to understand the state of our own hearts. So God asks Adam a question. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree from which I commanded you not to eat? God asked Eve a question. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? God directed a question to Cain after he murdered his brother. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? Then he said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. By the way, whenever you hear God ask questions in scripture, obviously it's never to learn. It's only to reveal. And his revealing issues, he comes to the prophet Samuel and he asks specifically, um, uh, what have you done? He asks that in reference to Saul who had interfered by walking into the office of priests that was restricted to only those who were called to be in the priesthood. So God asks through Samuel to Saul, what have you done after King David committed adultery? And then devised a plan to cover it over with murder. And he murdered Uriah and by default a number of Uriah's men. God comes through the prophet Nathan and asks him, why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? God asks the prophet Isaiah directly, whom shall I send and who will go for us? The omniscient Christ asked Judas, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Jesus also asked the Apostle Paul on the Damascus Road, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And it's just the same here in the book of Jonah. God is asking a question to help him to understand the state of his own heart. Do you have good reason to be angry? Someone may be thinking, but Jonah never really answered that question. That's not true. He does answer it, not verbally, but behaviorally. He answered it not by what he said, but by what he did. Look, if you will now, at verse 5. Then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. There he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. So he sits east of ancient Nineveh, which... If you've seen the place, it would put him up in the hill country. It would put him up in a higher elevation over the city. He wants to get up above the city. He wants to see precisely what God is going to do. And of course, he's hoping that the fire will fall and God will destroy all the people. So here he is in his little shelter of sticks and leaves and twigs. And he's pouting and he's waiting and he's looking hoping that God will bring fire and brimstone down from heaven. Now, I do not know how long it took the Ninevites to hear the gospel and to be saved, but obviously day 40 had not yet arrived. That's why he's still waiting. He's waiting to see if God will relent, to see if the repentance of the Ninevites is genuine. But why Jonah? Why should God change his mind? He's got to. Didn't he hear what I said? Oh, Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. Jonah is saying, Lord God, this is bad. It is so bad if you are going to relent, just kill me, take me home. And in this way of thinking, God obviously, from Jonah's perspective, is obligated to do something. And sometimes that's what we think. So here's Jonah. He's on the 50-yard line. He's got a choice seat. He's wanting to see what God is going to do. And he even says, God, if you're going to relent, just kill me. So to adjust his attitude, God lovingly moves into the life of his prophet, and he's going to do some corrections. And as we see God dealing with the prophet Jonah, we get an important answer to the question, do you really need to love people before you can minister to people? Do you have to have a genuine love for someone to share the good news with them? Well, Jonah obviously did not have a sincere love for the Ninevites. But God certainly could have used them even more effectively, as we'll see in these next two remaining messages, had he had a sincere love. So please notice God's ministry starts here in verse 6. So the Lord God appointed a plan. By the way, when you read the Bible, one of the things that you want to look for is words that are repeated over and over and over again. And God never repeats himself because he has nothing to say. Every single word is given by the inspiration of the Spirit. There are no accidental words in Scripture. And when God uses a word over and over again, it's typically to get our attention so that we do not miss the truth he's trying to underscore. Uh, please notice that in the immediate context, God uses three visuals to get Jonah's attention. You might want to underline them. In verse 6, it says, God appointed. There's the first time, appointed. God appointed a plan. Then in verse 7, it says, God appointed. There's the word again, God appointed a worm. And then in verse eight, it says, God appointed a scorching east wind. And so the outline reflects those three particular visuals that become tools to build consistency into the life of this prophet. And what an education he's going to get from the living God. So the Lord God appointed a plant and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. So here goes God appointing something again. We've already seen in the first chapter how God hurled a great wind on the sea such that there was a great storm, such that the ship began to break up, Jonah 1.3. And then we saw God's sovereignty again as the lot fell on Jonah, identifying him to the sailors as the culprit, such that he is thrown overboard. Then we saw how God appointed, in verse 17, a great fish to swallow Jonah. And now God in his sovereignty has appointed a plant, and God in essence commands the plant grow overnight and it does a jack and the beanstalk and he's got this marvelous shade. Now some of the older English translations if you've read the introduction to the 1620 King James Bible I had received a 400th anniversary copy of the old King James and I read the introduction it was rather interesting. And among other things they said is that they were still many of those scholars learning hebrew because remember for a long time the languages were not studied and they were convinced that there would be many changes and indeed there have been they put a scripture out in 1611 and then six months later they put 1611b and two years later 1613 and then the 1638 and so forth in fact there's been five revisions of what we typically call the old King James and now the new King James. So they rendered this a gourd. And when they were uncertain, they would go to the Latin Vulgate, which was the single translation that the church had for a thousand years. So they get the term gourd from the Latin Bible. But actually the Hebrew word is not of a gourd. It's the Hebrew word kikayon, And interestingly, if you remember, there's a Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's called the Septuagint. And when you put both of those languages together, because the Septuagint tells us how the Greeks understood the Hebrew, you learn that this is the castor oil plant. Now, the castor oil plant in some parts of the world will grow 30 to 40 feet tall. Typically, in this part of the world, it will grow to be about 12 feet in height. Here's a slide of uh, what it may look like. You can see it's large leaves that created this shade. Now, whether the one God grew that day was just like this, I suspect it was much higher, much fuller. I mean, he was able to get underneath it. So this is a fast growing miracle. God supernaturally grows up this plant. And we're told here in verse six in Jonah, was extremely happy about the plan. Now you talk about a mood swing. (laughs) In the opening verse, but it, the conversion of the Ninevites to the Lord, greatly displeased Jonah and he became angry. And then in verse three, in the depths of despair, therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. So in verse one, he's pouting. In verse three, he's despairing of life. But now, because of this plant, he's extremely happy. Not much emotional consistency. And there's not emotional consistency in our lives either if we're out of fellowship with God. Any of us come here on Sunday morning, we're just praising the Lord and exciting. But you show up at work on Monday and there's little adversity. And in comes this challenge. And you kind of go up and down Now, remember, this is the same preacher who in chapter 2 and verse 9 said, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving that which I have vowed I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. He said that in the belly of the great fish. He said, you are a good God. I will praise you. I'll do whatever you want. Salvation is from you. And When we like what God is doing, we are often extremely happy. But then when God does something that we don't like, we may get mad. As long as you're performing, God, according to my plans and my expectations and my hopes and how I think it should be done, I'll love you and I'll commit myself to you and I'll serve you. Pastors have to deal with this all the time. I get calls from pastors constantly are discouraged, downtrodden in the churches that they are in, you know, you, you make a decision that the people like, oh, we've got the most wonderful pastor in the world, we just love our pastor, but then comes a decision by the pastor or his deacons or the board of elders or whatever their polity is that may be a morally neutral decision, but people don't like it, and so they hit the roof and they come out unglued and they pout. See, the problem here with Jonah is that he was allowing his emotions to be controlled by his circumstances rather than by the character of the living God. And so God is first going to reveal to him something about his sovereignty. And you're not to let your feelings, we are not to let our circumstances run our life. Otherwise, we'll just be on this roller coaster up and down, up and down. Facts never change. But if we let our circumstances control us, we'll have this kind of an up and down Christian life. Now, God created you with emotions. And they're not to be ignored or to be denied. They are a good thing. They're a part of being made in the image of God. But God wants our emotions to be rooted and directed in the truth of Holy Scripture. There are people who look for an emotional high, maybe even on a drug, because it makes them feel good. There are people who go out and get drunk because it makes them feel good. There are people who are involved in sexual promiscuity because it makes them feel good. And so just because you have a feeling obviously doesn't make it a valid feeling. And so whatever feelings that we may be experiencing, we need to bring them through the, the, the screen of Scripture. You say, but my feelings are so real. They are. The question is, is your feeling right? And so God asks his prophet very pointedly here in verse 4, do you have good reason to be angry? You may be thinking, well, that's me, pastor. My feelings are dictated by my circumstances My circumstances determine whether I'm happy or unhappy. How do I see God develop consistency? How do I get off an emotional roller coaster? The only way is by meditating on the truth of God. Remember, when you meditate on Scripture, you're meditating on God. Because the breath of God represents the person of God. And as we'll see next time, more definitively, God will minister directly truth to this prophet. But listen, you cannot walk under the influence of God the Holy Spirit consistently consistently, unless you are walking under the influence of the word of God. Now, we've already discussed this in this series of how important the word of God was to the conversion of the Ninevites. But let's review that and go a little bit further. Hold your finger here and go to 1 Peter. If you're new to the Bible, the last book of the Bible is Revelation and scan back a little bit. And right after Hebrews, you have three men, Peter, James, and John, though not in that order. It's James, Peter, and John. Remember the inner circle, Peter, James, and John? That's, that's how I remember those three clustered together. You do what you want, but remember, that's not the order. It's James, First and Second Peter, First, Second, and Third John. Then there's Jude, and then John writes another book, the Revelation. Okay, lay that aside. Go to First Peter chapter one, if you will. First Peter chapter one, and look, if you will, at verse twenty-one. Verse twenty-one. Please understand that the instrument that God uses to bring about the second birth is the Word of God. No one has ever been saved apart from hearing the truth of Holy Scripture. Even before the Scripture was canonized and written down on scrolls, it was still the Word of God revealed through visions and dreams and through various means and methods that was preached that resulted in the conversion of souls. And so Peter reminds us here in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, for you have been born again not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring Word of God, so just as a human birth requires two parents, even so on the second birth. So on the one hand, the Bible teaches in John three, Jesus taught you're born again by the Holy Spirit. On the other hand, the scripture teaches you're born again by the word of God. So the Spirit of God uses the seed of the word of God to bring about conversion. For you've been born again, not of seed which is perishable. That's your first birth. But you were born again of imperishable seed through the living and enduring word of God. And so if you're not using God's seed, then you're not going to see the effects that God would want to minister through you. Why? Because faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God. The Bible, the scripture, the word of God is the effective instrument that the Lord uses to convert people. It's called the sword of the spirit. Now, if you sow God's seed consistently and faithfully, sooner or later, God is going to use you to bring someone directly into the kingdom of God. But sadly, today, Christians don't even use the seed. They use a lot of undefined metaphors. So a Christian will ask an unsaved person to accept Christ, to commit his life to Christ to ask Jesus into his heart. Those things are never found in Scripture. None of those terms are found in Scripture. The Bible never tells us to accept Christ. In many people's minds, you accept him as a model, as an illustration, or commit your life to Christ. The Bible never once says to commit your life to Christ. And so for some people, to commit your life to Christ is, again, to follow his example. It's to obey in certain realms. The Bible never says to invite Jesus into your heart. That's a rather new metaphor in the history of the church. Now, Christ coming into your heart, so to speak, <laughs> we were in a—I hadn't thought about this in years, but we were in the DMV. The first service didn't get this. That's why the second service is better. We are in the DMV, and I was with my son, Jameson. He was getting his license, and he said, should I be a donor, you know, a donor, give, give her a donor of, I mean, donor of my organs, I said, well, what do you think, son? He said, well, what if I give my heart? And if Jesus is in my heart, does that mean I won't be saved and we will go to the next guy? <laughs> anyway, so my, my, my point is, is that the Bible never even says to invite Jesus into your heart. Christ coming into your heart, so to speak, is a byproduct of salvation, but it's not how you're saved. So we use all these undefined metaphors instead of using Scripture directly. God uses His Word to bring about conversion. And often he uses a servant like Philip who comes alongside the Ethiopian eunuch and he unfolds the word for him. So the spirit of God uses the word of God to bring about the second birth. And when you believe that and you're convinced of that, then you'll see there's no real power in your testimony. It might give you a platform to talk to people of Jesus, but people can't be saved by hearing your testimony. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God. And I've been on countless settings when I've been sharing the gospel with someone and it seems like they're inconclusive in their thinking, they're doubting in their heart. There's like a, a fog over their spiritual thinking and I just keep reading scripture and reading scripture. Even at a meet the pastor sometimes, I can read the audience and I think this guy over here is not getting it and I'll use a little more scripture and and it's like the veil is lifted, and the Spirit of God opens the mind. Well, God uses the Word of God not just for conversion, but for sanctification. Both are equally true. And so, God is going to minister to Jonah through His Word to get him off of this emotional roller coaster. And God wants to get us off of the same roller coaster. But just know the word of God doesn't automatically grow in your heart so that you can get off of this up and down inconsistent Christian life. So remember that's true of the lost. Jesus said some lost people, though the seed is faithfully sown, they'll not respond because of issues of the heart. Parable of the sower, Mark 4, Matthew 13, so on. It's found in all three Gospels. The same is true in reference to sanctification for the believer. Look at the next verse. Remember, the chapter and verse divisions are artificial. So we read in chapter 2, verse 1, speaking to save people, therefore putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, Let me just say, the reason some Christians are not hungering for the Bible as they should, the reason they do not have a voracious attitude to study the Scripture is because very often they're feeding on the wrong things. And so first, we're told to get rid of certain things. The first on the list is malice. This just refers to wickedness in general. And it's typically bent on hurting someone else. And if you want to be stunted in your spiritual growth then just seek revenge. And I'll tell you, not only will it hurt you spiritually, it will hurt you physically. There are some people who have some serious physical problems because there's malice in their heart over what's happened to them, what someone else has done towards them, maybe what they think God should have done but God didn't do. And it worsens their physical condition. Now, that's not true of all physical problems, so don't go around being junior Holy Spirit here. But listen, it's one of the destructive traits of malice. And if you want to grow, you need to get rid of malice, but you also need to get rid of deceit, or you could render it guile. And it comes from a verb that means to catch with bait, dishonesty, trickery. In order to achieve one's purpose. So I ordered a product recently and they said, you got it, we're going to bring it. A week goes by and it doesn't come. And I call them and oh, it's been rescheduled. Well, we just had the fourth reschedule yesterday. We've got the product on hand. So you see, people sometimes want to do that to make the sale. But that's dishonesty. In addition, Peter mentions hypocrisy. Hupachrysos, we can hear our English word hypocrisy. It was used of Greek comedies of someone who played the part and so they'd put on a happy mask or they'd put on a sad mask. A play actor was a hypocrite in the Greek tragedies. And of course, there are people who appear to be spiritual, but when they are guilty of malice or guile, they will try to hide it and that typically produces the next trait here, hypocrisy. And then he adds, notice, Envy. Envy. Envy is when you begrudge the strengths or the advantages or the accomplishments or the abilities of another person. It might be some position they have, the things they possess, some spiritual gifts, some ministry, whatever it is that you are envious of. And when you see something that someone else really has and you want it, you begrudge them, and that, I tell you, will make you a spiritual pygmy. And it comes from a warped perspective of how God creates his church. We think that some positions in the assembly of the local church are to be coveted. You know, the pastor, he's the big shot. He's the most important person. And I'm just a nobody. There are no nobodies in the body of Christ. Every member is critical to the essential functioning of, of the body now the verb here speaks of uh, envy and we're to put it away and finally he adds notice slander and slander is basically the verbal fruit of envy the verb means to run down and it's usually done when the person isn't around or sometimes gossip is made by the way these are sins that are covering covering over the evangelical church today in creating great harm. And if you want to stunt your growth, if you want to rob the power of scripture to change you. So the sword of the Spirit, it's his sword. He takes it, but he can't take it if you're not filled and you won't be filled if these things are true in your life. John Bunyan, the celebrated English pastor and minister and preacher. He died in 1688. He wrote that famous book, The Pilgrim's Progress. They say next to the Bible, it's the most uh, printed book in the history of man. And of course, people quote this of so many different speakers, but it originated with Bunyan. And he had written in the flyleaf of his Bible, as I have had in the flyleaf of every Bible I've owned since I became a Christian. This book will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this book. So like Jonah, we can have malice in our hearts. He's angry. Peter warns us here, put aside all malice and guile and hypocrisy and envy and slander. These things will uh, just quench your appetite for Scripture, take away your hunger, and put you on a spiritual roller coaster. So having put away these things, look at verse 2. Like newborn babies... Long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Now understand, Peter is not calling us to be childish, but he wants us to grow up into maturity in Christ. So he wants us to be childlike and that we should have an appetite for the Bible that a newborn baby has for milk. And here he refers to, notice, is the pure milk of the word. Why? Because the Bible is God's inerrant, infallible, unadulterated truth. And it's the tool, the instrument that God uses to grow us and to mature us. And so he's using the phrase here to emphasize the analogy between a baby's hunger and the kind of hunger that we should have towards Scripture. Now, if you come to me and you say, oh, that's a crawl." I just don't understand it, I'm just so weak. I can hardly move, I can hardly keep my eyes open. Some of you look that way some Sunday mornings. And I can hardly get my leg out of bed. Oh, I'm short of breath, look at my hands there trembling. And yeah, man, you look bad, you don't look good. Uh, when did you eat last? Well, I don't eat at all. Well, I'll take that back. I eat once a week. Would you preach? That's the only time I eat. Otherwise, I don't eat. What do you suppose is wrong with me, Dr. Brogy? I'll tell you what's wrong. You need to get a good meal under your belt. Now, listen to your pastor. Man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And if you do not eat physically, that will happen to you. And if you do not eat spiritually, oh, Pastor Carl, I'm such a weak Christian. I'm so defeated. I'm up and down and all around. Never seem to develop any consistency. What do you suppose is wrong with me? You're not feeding on Scripture. Some of you come to the hog trough once a week on Sunday morning. And that's it. You do not consistently open the Holy Scripture to meditate on it, to be changed. And some of you don't even come consistently on Sundays. If something interferes, oh, we're starting vacation today. We're getting a jump start. Oh, it's the Lord's Day. Oh, but we got to get a jump start. You know, it's raining outside. Let's just stay home. Make me some fried eggs and bacon, and we'll just have a quiet morning together and There's hundreds, thousands, millions across America who call themselves born-again Christians. You need to feed on Scripture like a newborn baby. Now listen, you'll never get off the spiritual roller coaster first if there's dirt in your life. Because the Spirit of God cannot root that Scripture to grow you if you're not putting away certain things. But it's not enough to put away those certain things. You need to begin to set your mind, your will, and emotions according to the instrument of Scripture. You see, milk for a baby is not some addendum, it's critical to life. I've been there for the birth of the five most wonderful children in the world, from my point of view. They're magnificent children. My grandchildren, well, you know, I don't believe in the immaculate conception of Mary, but I almost do for my grandchildren, you know. I mean, uh, they're nearly sinless. They're magnificent. But, you know, when these kids are born, there's an immediate hunger to want to drink. And so it is for us, like newborn babes, long, crave, earnestly desire, yearn. For the pure, the sincere, the unadulterated, infallible milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. He's not using milk like the writer of the Hebrews is using it to compare it with meat, heavier truths. He's just saying that what a baby does, we need to do. And understand, grow in respect to salvation. Never forget, salvation is a big word. He has just spoken of justification justification is when you are forgiven of your past sins and you're born again through the imperishable word of God. The penalty of sin in the past is forgiven. Glorification still in the future when Christ will come, you will be translated in the twinkling of an eye. You'll be made like him. You'll never be able to sin again. But between those two points, is this process of sanctification. And that's what he's addressing here. Not justification, not glorification, but sanctification that you may grow. Look at verse three, he quickly adds, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord, knowing that not everyone has. Hey, listen, there are some people who've never had an appetite for scripture because they've never been saved. They may know all the right words. They may know the plan of salvation, but they've never met the man of salvation. They don't have a new nature. If anyone is in crisis a new creation, everything has become new. So they don't have a new craving, a new hunger, a new appetite. But then there are some who are plagued with issues and some who are even plagued by past sins. I mean... Jonah, you think he's under conviction? You know he is. We'll see it more next time. He just preached to Nineveh. Did he do it with the right attitude? Obviously, if you were here for the course and attitude, he did not. Look, when you're in sin and there's unresolved guilt in your life, it makes you angry. There's a lot of people who are dealing with unresolved guilt. Maybe you were unfaithful to your spouse and you're plagued by that. Maybe you aborted your little baby or abandoned your children and you're plagued by that. Maybe you regret how you raised your children or the fact that you had a divorce. How are you going to get off that roller coaster? you should jot down some of these words this morning. Remember the promise, our kids memorize it. My wife, every Wednesday, she's in there helping the kids with Miss Vernoy and a number of other marvelous ladies who care for those children. You know, music is a powerful tool for good or for evil. That's why Matt is very careful. We don't use Hillsong or Bethel. Have they produced some good songs? Of course they have. That's how the devil works. He disguises himself as an angel of light, but they've produced some absolute trash songs. So why don't we use their music? Because every song you play up there, we pay a fee on. And I'm not going to underwrite organizations that are apostate. And so we've seen all these music pastors and senior pastors through the Bethel Hillside movement in the last two years, even, yes, apostatized from the Christian faith. And so our kids learn godly music, and there's something about music. I could sing some ditty from the 70s and you could finish it. Why? Because of the power of music. And not only do they learn godly music, they learn godly scripture. This is one of the psalms they memorize. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night, and he'll be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. So let me give you some passages that I think, especially if you're plagued with guilt, that will be helpful to you, and I promise you, it will be helpful to people you will minister to. Almost every, really a month ever goes by when I don't use some of these passages, when people come into a pastor's office and they're plagued with guilt and failure. Jot these down, they'll be useful to you. Psalm 103, 10 to 12. He has not dealt with us, King David wrote, according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, not the north from the south, that's a fixed point. But the east from the west, infinitely. So far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. Listen to Hebrews 8 in verse 12. He's quoting the prophet Jeremiah. For I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Forgiven sin that God remembers no more, of course, does not mean that he has a case of divine amnesia, but that God doesn't hold it against you any longer. Listen to what Jesus said in Mark 3.28, truly I say to you, all sin shall be given the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter... Certainly, this is a verse every Christian should memorize, First John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Or jot down this verse, Isaiah 1, verse 18. Isaiah 1:18. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. Listen also to what Isaiah 43, 25, God said there, I, even I am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. And if you're still plagued by guilt, you should memorize and imprint Isaiah 53, 5 and 6 on your soul. But, speaking of Messiah, he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging you are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. And so when the devil brings up some sin in your past, don't deny it. Don't rationalize it. Face it head on. And remember, he was... Here's through for that sin. That sin helped nail him to the cross. That sin helped crush him while he was on that cross. God caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. And so if Jesus took the full wrath to tell us die, paid in full the punishment our sin deserves, why should we continue to punish ourselves for that sin is what nailed him to to the cross. And so there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But if you want to listen to the accuser of the brethren, because that's his ministry to you. That's one of his great titles, the accuser of the brethren. You have to choose, but if you can't counter those lies with truth, you'll be paralyzed by them. You shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. And so you will never get off of the emotional roller coaster unless you're able to bring those emotions under the authority of Holy Scripture. Now go back to the book of Jonah. Go back to Jonah. Jonah chapter 4. I want you to see how God is trying to help his prophet by ministering truth to him, especially first with the truth that he is sovereign over everything. One of the central lessons in the prophet Jonah is the sovereignty of God that God deals with this rebellious prophet by reminding him that he's over everything. We've seen his sovereignty throughout the book, starting in chapter one, when the word of the Lord comes to Jonah sovereignly, go and preach to the Ninevites and cry against that people. Then we saw his sovereignty in chapter one when God hurled a great wind on the sea. We saw his sovereignty when the sailors cast lots and providentially the lot falls to Jonah. And then we see God cause the sea to rage, and they throw him overboard, and it instantly is calm. And God in his sovereignty appoints a great fish to swallow Jonah. He is preserved sovereignly by the Lord for three days and three nights. And then the Lord commands the fish to spit him up on dry ground. And then in chapter 3, he goes and he preaches. And the greatest national revival to date in the history of man happens. And people are converted, all 600,000 from the greatest to the least of them, and then we see in God's sovereignty how he relents, how he changes his mind concerning the calamity that he said he would bring on Nineveh, and then God's sovereignty in addition when he appoints a plant to create shade for Jonah, and then when God appoints a worm to eat the root so that he felt faint, and then how God in his sovereignty sends this sirocco, this hot wind, and the sun beats down on Jonah's head. Talk about a sovereign God. And one of the problems with modern evangelicalism is we've replaced the truths about God with psychobabble. And so people are no longer consistently, faithfully taught the word of God. And the problem is, is that Christians are being taught more and more to experience a certain feeling. I mean, I call every visitor if they'll give me permission to on their guest card. I've talked to thousands in 30-plus years. And I've heard people say, well, I love your church. Why? It makes me feel good. And a lady yesterday, I don't like your church. Why? It doesn't make me feel good. What does it have to do with feelings? And so our worship services are designed with black lights and smoke and collar and songs that are theologically bankrupt to get people to worship their feelings. They come here for some kind of a spiritual buzz, but not to worship the living God. But listen, you know, You don't obey based on feelings. When you don't feel like reading the Bible, do you not read it? When you don't feel like praying, do you not pray? When you don't feel like sharing your faith, do you not share it? There are a lot of times when you don't feel like doing something. I mean, you tell your son, son, I want you to go and clean that room, and you need to do it now, and you need to do a good job. And he comes back and says, oh, Dad, I don't feel like it. And you're thinking, what does feelings have anything to do with it? I'm your sovereign dad, and it doesn't matter how you feel. Get in there and clean up your room. And God is our sovereign God. And He wants us to understand how great and how sovereign He is. And He asks a simple question Do you have good reason to be angry? God is asking Jonah whether he has a right to be angry over how he thinks things should have unfolded, or whether God is a sovereign God, as great as he is, did it right. He's basically saying, Jonah, we're looking at the same event from two entirely different perspectives. I am thrilled the angels in heaven are thrilled, but you're angry. And so whenever God asks a question, it's often to bring our thoughts, our feelings in line with his person. Paul will say, let God be found true and every man be found a liar. Now, that's God's ministry through his sovereign giving. But now I want you to see how God ministers to Jonah by his gracious taking. He sovereignly grows up a plant. But I want you to see his gracious taking beginning now in verse seven. But God appointed a worm when dawn came the next day and it attacked the plant and it withered. This time God appoints a a worm and being the gracious God that he is, he waits until dawn until his prophet has a good night's sleep. So God orders the worm to eat the root and the plant withers. Now it's kind of interesting. On the one hand, God uses an incredibly big fish to display his sovereignty, and now an itsy-bitsy, teeny-weeny little worm. It's actually the Hebrew word for a fruit grub. But not only did this provide a pleasant shelter, now God takes away what he was rejoicing is because we'll see next time his perspective is warped. And God takes it away. And not only does he kill the plant, the text says he appointed a scorching east wind. When the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind. This is what they call to this day in the Middle East of Sirocco. Those hot desert winds that come off the Sahara Desert into the Middle Eastern part. It was a burning hot heat. And he's faint. And I suppose in one sense, God has just given him a faint taste the horrors of hell. But let me just say, when our priorities are off and we'll unfold that more, we'll complain, we'll grumble over things that are really not important at all. I mean, after 9-11, there was a great disaster in our nation and the churches were filled for about three weeks. And people were grateful. I've got so much to be thankful for, you know. Think of the terrible fate of those people. And then a few days go by, a few months is back to the same old grumbling about God. Think about the very last thing I thought about this. What was the very last thing I grumbled about? What difference will that thing you just grumbled about yesterday make 100 years from now? people are dying and going to hell and we're worried about vines. And I'm begging people to be a part of the Easter Blitz and we don't want to be inconvenienced. When the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and pleased notice the intensity of his prayer and begged with all his soul to die saying, Lord, death is better to me than life. In Verse six, he was very grateful about the plant. The First time in the whole book, it says he's extremely happy. Now he says, death is better to me than life. This is the identical statement he said the day before recorded in verse three. In fact, it's the only unanswered prayer in the entire book. In chapter 1, there was prayer and fear with the sailors, and God answered their prayer. In chapter 2, there was prayer and faith on behalf of Jonah and the belly of the great fish, and God answered his fa- prayer. In chapter 3, there was the prayer and fasting of the Ninevites, and God answered their prayer. And now here in chapter 4, there's prayer and foolishness, and God doesn't answer. Now, we cannot help but notice that God appointed a great fish, that God appointed a plant, a worm, a wind, and they all obeyed God. Everything in the book obeys God. Even the Ninevites, everybody, everything, except Jonah. By the way, have you ever thanked God for unanswered prayer? (laughs) I thank God for some of the moronic things I asked him for, and thank God he didn't answer He became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, death is better to me than life. Why doesn't God answer his prayer? Because it's not God's will and God's not finished with his prophet. Sure, he completed the incredible task of delivering the message of salvation to the Ninevites. But God's not simply interested in using you as an instrument to bring conversion. He's interested in you. And so here's this rebellious, rather obnoxious prophet asking for a very foolish request. And God says no, because God loves him. See, he needs to have his emotions brought into the reality that not only is God sovereign, but God is gracious. And so God in this chapter is highlighting both his grace and his sovereignty and we'll explore that even more next time. Let's talk about how we're going to apply this this morning. Let me suggest three applications as we close our time off. Number one, we need to trust God's wisdom and sovereignty even when it does not make sense to us. We need to trust God's wisdom and sovereignty even when it doesn't make sense. Now, obviously, Jonah cannot understand why God would want to save the wicked Ninevites when he had already revealed through three contemporaries, Isaiah, Hosea, In Amos, that someday he would use the Ninevites as his disciplinary instrument to judge Israel. Why do you want to say those wicked people? And it made no sense to him. And he couldn't grasp the wisdom of God. He couldn't accept God's mercy and God's grace upon the Ninevites as being the right thing. Is he not a picture of us sometimes? There are times when God doesn't do what we think he should have done and we're upset. God, why did you let this trial happen to my family? God, why did you take my child? Why did you take my grandchild? Why did my wife jettison me? Why did my husband commit adultery and marry some other woman? Why did this happen to me? Don't you care? And sometimes we don't really believe that God is sovereign That even in the midst of man's sin and wickedness that he knows what he is about. I draw a second lesson from this chapter. It is our lack of love for God that creates a lack of love for the souls of other people. It's obvious from this book that Jonah lacked love for the people of Nineveh. I mean, even when they turn from their sin, does he want to stay and teach and consolidate the work? He just wants to quit on that hillside. I understand what Jonah's reasoning was initially, and we covered it in the first of these series of 10 messages, but understand this man's real problem is not that someday God's going to use the Ninevites to judge Israel. His real problem is his lack of love for the Lord. You see, even when the will of God doesn't make sense to us, we need to obey out of our love for the Lord. Remember what Jesus said, the one who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and the one who loves me, I will be loved by my father, and I will reveal myself to him. Had Jonah fervently and actively been loving the Lord, he wouldn't have disobeyed and fled the presence of the Lord. I mean, does a man flee from his wife? when is in love with his wife? Does a woman abandon or abort her children when she's in love with her children? Remember what Jesus asked Peter after he denied him three times? Simon, son of John, do you love me? The great problem with many Christians today is their lack of love for God. Remember when Jesus, on that one occasion, is asked what the greatest of all the commandments is? He quotes the Shema in Matthew 22. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Remember the indictment Jesus gave against the church of Ephesus in Revelation 2? But I have this against you. You have left your first love. And this is why there is such disregard and disdain and disobedience for the great commission that God has given every believer to take to the world. Is because it's a lack of sincere, genuine love for Jesus Christ. Third, I learn from this portion of Scripture: The basis for our love and acceptance of others is based on God's love and acceptance of us. Our love for others is predicated to God's love for us. Think about what Jonah is doing here. I mean, if God had dealt with Jonah the same way he wanted God to deal with the Ninevites, where would Jonah be? <laughs> He'd be drowned in the bottom of the Mediterranean we say, God, bless me, be gracious to me, but zap them. Remember, we deserve hell. Our righteous deeds are as dirty rags. Not our unrighteous deeds, not our bad works, but our best works are so tainted with sin, God can even say our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. And so God in Christ does an exchange. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Why? That we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so God takes our sin, lays it on Christ. When you come to Christ, he credits you with his righteousness. And so as we were reminded on Wednesday night through Dr. Fletcher, God loves you as much as he loves his own son. Because your standing is in Christ. We love Because he first loved us. And it's an unconditional love. And if you really believe that truth, then that's the basis by which you need to accept your spouse. That's the reason you need to accept your children. You may not like what your children do, but you want to be careful that you do not communicate, especially to children who are growing up in your home, much less adult children. I I will love you if, if you act this certain way. That's paralyzing. That's like sulfuric acid in their spiritual tank. Our spirit should be, I love you no matter what, because that's how God loves us in Christ. Listen, if God dealt with us according to our iniquities, we would be hopelessly lost. One of the great misconceptions of Christianity is that God had to incarnate Himself so that we could be saved. Nothing could be further from the truth. God didn't have to do anything. God didn't have any debts to pay. God didn't have to become a man. Though he became a man, it was only through the incarnation that he could save us. God had no obligations. That's the nature of grace. Grace. If it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. God had zero debts to pay. The only thing he owed us was the wrath that our sin deserves. My wife and I were in California last year, and my, the drug problem amongst homeless people. You drive down the street, and it's just everywhere, and now it's coming through our southern border, and You know, we're not protecting our southern border. That's part of what makes a nation a nation. The book of Acts teaches that God himself established borders. And they say the Chinese are now lacing marijuana and other drugs with fentanyl. And you go to some cities in New Hampshire, and they say on every street there's people with drug problems. We saw these homeless people, and people would walk by them, and they'd, They're just everywhere and they'd look at them in disgust like they're just a bunch of derelicts. (laughs) And I think that was someone's precious baby one day. They held that little child one day. And what happened? Listen, if your parents were in tune and they loved you unconditionally and raised you in the things of the Lord. You have so much to be thankful for. You've been given much. But there go I by the grace of God. Grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Do you remember Ephesians 2.8 now? And you should have it memorized. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of works. Then no one may boast. Who is that written to? Saved or lost people? Saved. Now, most often we apply it to the lost, and justifiably so, to help them to understand how God forgives people. Understand, when Paul writes that letter, he's not trying to get the Ephesians saved. They're already saved. In that magnificent chapter, he is contrasting what we are by nature and what God has made us by grace. Why? Because these people who had already received the grace of God, who were already saved, needed to grow in that magnificent grace. And so if you've been saved by grace, are you growing in grace? Do you have a clean heart where the Word of God can take root and you're hungering and thirsting daily after the things of God so that you can become the man or woman or teenager and even little boy or girl that God wants you to be? If you've never met the grace of God, if you've never received God's grace, I invite you today to do so. Let's bow our heads. Every head bowed, every eye closed, you're here and you're not sure that you'd go to heaven. You want to be sure, but you're not sure. Well, typically the Bible means that means you've never been saved. Listen, you're only saved once. Just like there's only one physical birth, there's only one spiritual birth. And you may be doubting in the back of your heart whether or not you are really going to heaven because you're not sure you're good enough. Well, God says you're not, you never can be. And that's why he sent his son for the great exchange. He took all of your sin, past, present, and future, and he laid it on Christ. And when you come in simple, childlike faith, for those things you know are evil and wrong that need to be forgiven and changed, the Bible calls that repentance, and you put your faith where God put your sin on Christ, that resurrected Savior in an instant of time, will save you. But you must call upon him in faith, knowing that God cannot lie, for whoever will call on his name will be saved. And if you believe what God promised, the scripture teaches, you'll be 100%, because you know God is able to do that, which he said. Would you say in simple childlike faith, Lord Jesus, save me. Now, Father, as we study this prophet... We see a lot of Jonah in us. Thank you for this seminary experience that you're giving us as we're able to join Jonah, as you take him through these courses on attitude, consistency, and perspective. Do in us that which would be pleasing in your sight. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.